2: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network, I'm Pierre D'Alancer. The cultural theorist Mark Fisher, author of Capitalist Realism and the K-Punk Blog has become a cult figure in the world of the online left. So much so that his work and Fisher himself have become the stuff of memes. The memeing of Mark Fisher is the subject of a new book by Mike Watson. Watson picks up on Fisher's recognition that capitalism breeds depression at a moment when the lockdown pandemic world is in the throw of an economic and psychological depression, no doubt exacerbated by the wholesale transfer of life and culture online. Alongside Fisher, Mike Watson's book revisits the Frankfurt School theorists who worked during the rise of the culture industry. In examining their thoughts and drawing parallels with Fisher's capitalist realism, Watson aims to render the Frankfurt School as an incited theoretical toolbox for the post-COVID digital age. Mike Watson is a theorist, critic, and curator who is principally focused on the relationship between culture, new media, and politics. I'm very happy that Mike joins me now to talk about the legacy of Mark Fisher, Meme Warfare, and the future of the acid left. Welcome to the show, Mike.
1: Hey, hi. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here.
2: Mike, we're going to be talking about your new book, The Meming of Mark Fisher, which follows on quite neatly, I think, from a previous book entitled Can the Left Learn to Meme? So it's no doubt to me straight away that we're talking about the left, we're talking about political project, and we're talking about memes. But before we get into any of this, I'd like you to, to, to tell us a little bit about how you came to be, well, one, a leftist, two, how you came to be interested in memes and, and how the intellectual sphere around all of this has developed.
1: Okay, right, yeah. The question how how I came to be a leftist is a bit like one that someone asked me recently <laughs> on a podcast was how, how I came to be interested in art, not because they're the same, not you know, it's not the same reason, but it's just something that, you know... I
2: mean, I also want you to answer that question if you can.
1: <laughs> um, well, maybe actually, maybe I can work them together, but the reason that I find the question similar is that it's just so hard to trace trace the, mm-hmm. um, you know, the originary moment when I became a leftist. Uh, I didn't have, like... Uh, Paul on the road to Damascus moment. Yeah. Well, I suppose at some point, it was some point in my teens anyway, that I started to identify with, with anarchism and Marxism equally and sometimes alternately. And I think I, you know, I'm someone who really thinks it's important to maintain this term, the left, um, equally terms like socialism. There's a growing trend to say that, you know, we're beyond left and right. I don't really buy that because the left means something very specific. I mean you could call it something different from the left, but we tend to say left. So I think, you know, we all know what we're talking about when, when we say when we say left. But for me it's really it's really summed up by this quote from Marx, From each according to their ability to each according to their needs, which basically is a process of sharing, but some kind of process whereby you share out according to you know according to what people need to fulfill their potential which is very important to me growing up because we had no money um I grew up in the UK where I was born and we were pretty poor went to a state school there were five children in the family and my dad was frequently unemployed or self-employed gardener decorator, but um we had yeah we had no money and and you know i think that impedes it impedes one and my parents really said look you have to get an education you need to you know do your studies and i happen to be good at my studies so they push that and they push that and it just always seemed to me therefore you know fundamental that that we do give everyone the opportunities because we don't know where the next great opera singer or painter mm-hmm. or politician might come from if everyone had the had the possibility to you know to learn and to explore what they're good at. So that's really, for me, the the main thing. And yeah, it's just been since I was in my teens. And then art. At some point, I just felt that art is fundamental also to this. And that was before I even knew about the Frankfurt School, who we'll discuss shortly, who I wrote about in, in those two books you mentioned. But just that art maybe is a missing piece in all of this, that Marx's materialism is, is not enough. And yeah, I'm still grappling with that today.
2: You're not alone in in, in trying to to figure these things out. And I I ask you about about your leftism, I think quite, quite facetiously, but I think it's an important distinction to make in a podcast network where we generally talk to scholars who are engaged in various guises of the humanities and critical theories. I think it's important to underline that some of your interests come from a field of political practice. I think one of, the, one of the things we need to get out of the way before we get into the memeing of Mark Fisher is a tiny biography or intellectual biography of, of Mark, Mark Fisher. Who was Mark Fisher and why, why are his ideas worthy of a revival so, so soon after they've actually come into to being in the first place?
1: Okay, yeah. Mark Fisher is a British critical theorist and he studied, I think, in the nineties. He did his PhD at Warwick University in a uh, department that had attached somehow a research centre. I forget the name actually. I'm not talking very... about the CCRU. Yes, yeah. Which doesn't yeah. actually, if you if you look up Nick Land, doesn't tell you anything good about Mark Fisher, but just to say that he was part right. of a group of people who went on to be very influential, who all went to Warwick, such as Ray Brassier. Uh, also went to Warwick. He went from Warwick, didn't find University Post and ended up also not getting published very much and then started a um, blog called K-Punk in the early 2000s. And um, that became hugely influential. It was part of like a massive moment of positivity for the internet. I think Mark Fish was, you know, I think he was probably um, equally positive and negative. But, mm-hmm. you know, it was a moment where we thought the internet could, could really lead... You know revolutions, but also revolutions in publishing and in academia, and it kind of did, it did the latter to some to some degree. And Fisher then got um, a part time post at Goldsmiths University after teaching in further education. So, like in, in America, you'd say what would you say high school, but in the UK you mm-hmm. say college. Um, so he was teaching there in 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 high school or college for a while. Then did get a, a kind of part-time temporary post at Goldsmiths and then got a, I think actually a solid proper post, you know, at Goldsmiths College. And then tragically, uh, when this was all going so well for him, after he'd also published a book called Capitalist Realism with an imprint called Zero Books, which he set up with a few friends of his, you know, after kind of getting that stable position and that success through capitalist realism, he took his life in 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, so since then he's just become huge I mean he was already I think one of the biggest living political theorists in the UK or, or should we say philosophers of culture in the UK was getting a growing audience in Europe was starting to make tiny inroads in America and I think the thing that really stuck is he was talking about capitalism and the way capitalism co-ops culture so, so it's, it's kind of big idea on capitalist realism which isn't entirely new which, which which he stated brilliantly and and in a way that I think British people, you know, of the time two thousand eight two thousand nine, could understand uh, the thing that he said is that basically there's not an idea that exists or or a cultural tendency or movement uh, that that isn't co-opted immediately by capitalism, mm. you know, and and he was dealing with what we then do about that, and he called that reality capitalist realism okay so that that term stuck and he was brilliant at coming up with terms actually and that term really stuck and it kind of it's kind of defined the theoretical period but it defined the theoretical period you know after he wrote the book but since he died it's just it's it's exploded Mm -hmm. what's also happened is he's become a meme uh he's become a popular meme figure that is a a um an image, his own image or quotes from his books or the image of the cover of Capitalist Realism has become like, you know, part of many memes, memes being kind of viral JPEG or video images that spread around the internet. So when we say meme, we basically mean a viral cultural unit. But when Mm -hmm. we say meme in this context, we often mean literally these square, often square JPEG Mm -hmm. images that appear on your social media feed, um, so he's been for me memed because he's become a meme, and then the thing that, the thing about this is it basically means he's become co-opted. He has become co-opted by capital, just like he warned that everything, even the most kind of yeah. virulent anti-capitalist, you know, statement, will become co-opted by capital. And you could ask, well, why, why does that mean he's been co-opted by capital? Because memes don't make money. Uh, as mm-hmm. such, they're not part of like the the exchange of artworks, for example, or mostly not uh, in the art world. But they uh, they do feed into into the, the data capitalist structure because you know everything you do online creates data which then gets sold. So uh, that's what my book, The Meming of Mark Fisher, is about. Is about how he became memed, and if even he can't resist or his image can't resist capitalism, what what can? But then I looked at the Frankfurt School because they first or for me, you know, they 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 first brought up. Um, Well, I mean, it really, I think, goes back to Marx and and George Lukash, but, you know, in terms of prominent philosophical figures, they're the ones associated most with this idea of co-optation, of of, of culture, and they had their own ways of dealing with this. So I kind of talk about their ways of dealing with it, because actually, Fisher leaves a cryptic message at the end of capitalist realism, uh, when he says that capitalism causes depression. And he says at the Mm. end of the book, we need to basically take this depression and kind of use it against capitalism. So he kind of suggests that it's something about this depressive malaise caused by capitalism that could lead to new cultural thoughts and movements. But it's like very much in the last two pages. But in his last unfinished work, uh, which is uh, called Acid Communism, the introduction of which is published in an anthology of of, uh, writings of his, in his last unfinished work he 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 developed much more on the notion that not just mental illness but kind of um irrational thought processes and and, and irrational creative forms could be part of a an anti-capitalist movement which he would he would uh, tie into the countercultural movements of the 60s and 70s so i basically pick up on that and talk about how he relates to the Frankfurt School of Thinkers from mm. capitalist realism up to uh, his last unfinished work against communism.
2: Mm, thank you. I'm going to leave um, links to a variety of sources, including all the books that we just mentioned, Mike, so that listeners can peruse the K Punk archive um, as well as immerse themselves in the variety of Fisher memes that I think we'll be talking about in one way or another in a moment. But before we get into this mimetic reproduction, I think we should do what you try to do in the book, which is to start with the legacy of the Frankfurt School and their approaches to this moment that Fisher recognised, this moment of absolute co-optation. So the different thinkers in the Frankfurt School, I think, have the different um, responses to that moment of, of doom, so to speak. So you know, Adorno has this idea of return to... Abstraction in the culture industries, Horkheimer is into philosophy, Marcuse is, I guess, interested in human sexuality and eras. And I guess the, the thinker whose most straightforward connection to internet cultures is Walter Benjamin.
1: Okay, so Benjamin is probably best known for his his essay The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction, yeah. which he wrote in the nineteen thirties. Basically, in that essay, he talks about how there was a, a huge increase in the production of images in the early modern period. Or shall we say, um, the kind of mass reproduction of images in the era era industrial capitalism led to a proliferation of images such that people could experience artworks for the first time. People who couldn't see... The Mona Lisa firsthand could now see it in books, or on postcards, on posters, biscuit tins, etc. And he said that this had two effects. Firstly, it kind of took away what he called the aura, which is kind of a non-spiritual or should we say quasi-spiritual glow around the artwork. Not that you could see, but kind of a, you know an imagined mm-hmm. uh, glow making the the artwork somehow different to other ordinary objects. It took away the aura from the artwork, and at the same time, it made the artwork more accessible to the masses, thus democratizing culture. So these are two contrary trends. But what what um, Benjamin says is that okay, whilst we lose the individual aura of the artwork, the thing that makes an individual specific art object, art object like the Mona Lisa alluring whilst we strip that away to some degree, both in the reproductions of the Mona Lisa, because they don't have that same you know, that aura attached to to the object's uniqueness, both in the in the individual original artwork and in the and in the copies. Okay. The, the the copies don't have what the Mona Lisa has, the Mona Lisa no longer has what the Mona Lisa used to have, because we've already seen it many times before we get to finally see it. And when we see it, you know, it's surrounded by other tourists trying to get photos. Of it. then what he says is that um aside from this kind of kind of loss of the aura you do have a situation where the public seeing many many more things seeing many more images suddenly want more stuff they want you know, increased wealth basically but suddenly they had you know the images they were seeing in magazines in cinemas um on posters etc and this led them to to question material relations and why they perhaps couldn't have this stuff in reality, okay? So what um, the fascists did at that point, what right-wingers basically did, is take people's hunger for more things and divert it into a hunger for expansionism, for warfare, for living space in the East, for example. This was very effective, okay? So what I would say is that Today's um, image culture around Instagram, Facebook, Twitch, so that's a live streaming service, Mm -hmm. YouTube, that does this but to a much greater degree. It basically repeats Adorno's process, but we're suddenly dealing with a situation when not only do we see so much more stuff, we also have dangled in front of us the prospect of becoming a star, either deliberately Mm -hmm. or even accidentally becoming famous. You know, also because people can make so many decisions in their everyday life in terms of what they see or they think they can at least. Um, this leads people to want to make political decisions. So you get things like Trump saying, "Let's build a wall." That sounds proactive. We're doing something. We're going to build a wall. Or you have Boris Johnson saying, uh, "Let's take back control from the EU." Okay, so these things were very effective, and and they very much tied in with the public, you know, really asking, well. Why can't we be making decisions? Why do we feel somehow spoken down to? You know, there's a flip side to this, though, because actually these new kind of media do more than ever actually allow us to get access to the stuff that we crave, to have the celebrity that we we crave. So you you have a, a process that's much similar to in Walter Benjamin's time in the 1930s, but that is also different. And I think that's something very important to... To grasp, because I think media theory is too reliant on this kind of top-down Marxist, what well, is Marxist pyramid, whereby the ruling elite yeah. uh, control the media to dominate the the masses. What well, they do, but you have a situation where the masses now are able to make their own media, and then this necessitates a new type of uh, confusion of the messages coming from 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 the elite, because they just basically they're trying to they're embracing. The, the lack of a one directional uh, narrative and, and they're feeding into the confusion to create a smokescreen uh, behind which they can carry on their control so this leaves us with a situation you know where the internet is in a sense both the best and worst thing that ever happened to us because it does mm-hmm. give us power, power but it also enables it does enable a total smokescreen created by by the people who have the real power and the book kind of interacts with these themes and asks what do we do next now, Walter Benjamin, aside from saying all of that stuff, he also talked about constellations, so actually, it's important to realize that the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction was written whilst he was also writing what we call the arcades project, yeah um which was a project whereby he walked around the arcades of Paris, these covered shopping malls, which were built in the eighteen hundreds. He walked around them like a flaneur. Who were people of the 1800s? Who, who, you know, bourgeois people who would kind of dress up and just walk very casually and slowly around Paris, almost as a protest. Uh, almost, they were like slackers. Um, how can we say? It? Uh, or more, ma- <laughs> or more rats. more rats being like, you know, American kids mm-hmm. who hang around malls. They were like that, but rich. And I mean, really trying to fathom their 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 motivations is difficult. But in the book, I kind of say, well, it's almost a protest against you know their own wealth against the absurdity of of of, of the industrial period in paris mm. um whereby the, the 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 young the children of the bourgeois um had so much money and time that they would just walk around parading their riches through their clothes uh, almost as um nihilistic you know an, an affirmation of the absurdity of of, of 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 the position of the position they inhabited as wealthy people um now benjamin Reflected back on that. He was also a bourgeois son of a German industrialist, German Jewish industrialist who was exiled from Germany during World War II. And he kind of reflected back from that. And I think what he was doing was he was reenacting being a flaneur as a kind of admission of his own privilege. And also when he was going on his slow walking tours of the arcades of Paris, he was trying to put together what he called constellations. So this is part of his theory, the constellation, but he was kind of actively dealing with constellations. Now, constellations for Benjamin are groups of objects that you put together, and in grouping them together, you start to read, you start to, you start to create new interpretations from that grouping that maybe is different from the individual objects in themselves. So you may have a book and a magazine and a bar of luxury soap and a piece of jewellery, and then you could juxtapose that with the actual building they're sold in. So Benjamin walked through these arcades that had these kind of boutique shops and he would create juxtapositions in his mind together with juxtapositions of, of the things he was reading, such as Marx and who wrote uh, Flowers of Evil. Yeah, yeah. And a number of other people he was reading as he was researching the arcades project. Um, and... In putting together these constellations of the objects he was seeing and the architecture that was itself built in the uh, 1800s, this kind of booming this booming industry in, in France, um, as he was putting together these things, he hoped that constellations of um, capitalist products could throw light on the history of capitalism and explain how he got mm. where he was then or how society got where it was then. So it's a way of basically almost excavating capitalism, taking out a sequence and throwing together disparate objects with a view to better understanding capitalism from, from the results. Now, I was just saying all that to say that, bear in mind that the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction was written whilst he was also writing that much longer book, The Arcades yeah. Project. Now, where he's referring to media there, I think he's doing that because he hopes to interpret Um, through the media of the time, the contemporary media of the time, he hopes to also interpret uh, the history of capitalism leading up to them. So, you know, rather than talking about constellations of capitalist commodities in a normal sense, in the work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction, he's exploring constellations of Mm. image objects, you know, of media.
2: So, shall we try to drag Benjamin into the digital age? Because you have a not very nice title. You compare Benjamin to the digital flaneur in one of your chapters, and you pick up on on something that mark fisher observes in one of his essays which is that the the amount of preparation that goes into the instagram selfie or which whichever platform fisher would have been referring to is indicative of the fact and i think this is now your your observation that the amount of labor that goes into this kind of appearance of nonchalance and and spontaneity that we all produce on the internet is to do with the fact that we are somehow free to do that, as in we're not required to participate in other forms of, of of labor. The traditional Marxist conception of what it is that labor means is now so completely out of sync with reality that we do ourselves a bit of a disservice by clinging on to these kind of ideas. So, from that perspective, the meme maker or the selfie taker is still this kind of Benjaminian flâneur. How do you see? that reading from benjamin being something that we can use productively as a political set of directives in on, for the internet age
1: so yeah where where the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction enters into this process of uh, constellations but you know where he's suggesting the, the, the possibility of looking at um, constellations of of media in terms of you know film magazine etc i think we can do that today because I think we are much like flaneurs in our behaviour. Not possibly mm-hmm. that we are as privileged as the flaneurs, but then this is this is very tricky mm-hmm. because if you're looking at a world categorisations of privilege that include not only all of history, but include the whole world, then I'd have to say that even the fairly poor among us in the West are fairly privileged. And of course, there's degrees yeah. of that because there's certain mechanisms, there's mechanisms of capital in the West that mean you can be fairly privileged, but you're still somehow impeded in becoming an ind- individuated person or however you, wanna, however you want to put it. But I think one can be privileged and not privileged at the same time. But in any case, let's say I never had much money myself and my family you know, was poor when I grew up. Um, but in my spending most of my day on the internet, you know, as a writer, but also Making memes looking at, at, at internet culture, watching Netflix, whatever, I am enormously privileged in comparison to so many people in the world who don't have that that flexibility who don't have that the opportunity just to to meander so you know even the the process by which we go through the internet by which we look at things by which we pick up and put down things so to speak is is a lot like the way a flaneur you know walked through Paris, so I make that comparison. And I think that you know we 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 do put together constellations nonstop and I think a lot of the constellations we put together they really they really surprise us, they shock us, and I think that they do reveal to some degree to us the absurdity of capitalism. but I think we often get kind of stuck there that we see absurdity, and what's actually happening, which I don't say in the book really um is that we cycle through um constellations of Absurd image objects on the internet, and we we realise you know how ridiculous this all is, and I think we get cynical, but we just go back into the same cycle. We don't tend to do much about it, and then if you mm-hmm. look at the mean, the meme mean production of um, young people, let's say Generation Z, so they would be up to mid twenties, I guess um, mm-hmm. millennials as well, uh, but they could be anything up to. I guess forty one or so now. No, um, please don't say you,
2: 41, because 'cause I'm forty one. Yeah. I am definitely not a millennial. Forty is the is the cutoff point. Is it I, on my podcast it's forty, I'm sorry.
1: All right. okay, okay. I'm not gonna <laughs> argue. I mean I mean it can't be forty forever because you know, that's the whole thing about generations. <laughs> it was forty <laughs> millennial anyway, the younger people, um, let's say people who were in their twenties, in their thirties, up to a certain point. Um, the production they're putting out there, the images they're putting out there, are deeply cynical often, and they and and mm. you know, I think this is where Mark Fisher has been picked up on as a as a figure as a kind of meme image because you know his his message is you know is that basically we we can't supersede capitalism probably, but he does leave out mm. this he does leave this kind of get out point, but it's lost in a lot of the memes. A lot of the memes just refer to his cynicism because it it chimes with the cynicism and anger and bitterness. Of of young people today, I think you know the the internet can be useful if we if we make these constellations, if we bring them to a certain point, uh, having reached realisations about about capitalism, and the we, we we then get together and we try and do something about it. Um, we have to use the internet to get us, you know, to meet up outside the internet. But that's not you know. It's not to say mm. I, I I don't dislike the internet. I think it's really can be very useful, but I wrote this book in in lockdown. Anyway, I found the lockdown very a very heavy moment, and my feeling was that in the lockdown certainly expedited our kind of you know being permanently online, so that everyone ended yeah. up in this space because people ended up doing you know working through Zoom, who maybe weren't familiar you know with uh, that kind of technology before. um And I was thinking, well, we're we're actually going to this is going to have to end one day. When it ends, there's going to be you know a desire to to change things but at the same time i think we're going to be quite stuck in this internet i had kind of foreseen a possible kind of an emergence of a of a countercultural movement similar to that which was um engaged with by herbert marcusa who's also a frankfurt mm-hmm. school figure who i talk about there and uh you know that that, that fisher points to as well in his in his unfinished book acid communism where he he quotes marcusa and you know i really thought that maybe this is the moment for a counterculture because you have a situation where a number of people who would have normally kind of um experimented with um drugs and uh sexuality and actually just had their first moments of you know socializing as adults completely independent from their families a number of people who would have had that experience um, and who were denied it because of uh, the covid lockdown would have suddenly been allowed out at the same yeah. time as a number of unemployed persons because the economy was probably going to crash would suddenly be out on the streets and there was there would be potential for the kind of movement um marcuse proposed whereby you know the students would would kind of meet up with uh, the migrant class, meeting up with workers, and they would engage in what Marcuse called the Great Refusal, Mm. which was simply a refusal of the way that, again, the way that capitalist culture co-opted to desire in his case. So Marcuse talks about uh, this kind of same process that Fisher talked about, but more in terms of uh, how capitalist culture sells us our desires, but kind of watered down. So we're, you know, we're sold you know solutions to our desires through Hollywood films that yeah. don't entirely, don't entirely actually, they actually, you know, they lead us to think we've been satiated whilst actually our desires have, have become something else. Marcuse says we need to kind of rise up against this and saw that as happening as he saw a kind of freeing up of sexual energies in the 60s.
2: I think maybe it's a good moment for us to get a little bit more in line than we have so far in our conversation. And and being online, I guess, is a technical term that we might have to explain to our listeners. There is an aspect of participation in, in Tumblr, Twitch, and Twitter discourses that means that one is completely isolated from reality. I see your book trying to Engage with meme culture in a slightly different way than you did in learn *Left to Meme*, or at least you see this kind of new, new optimist. So you have a really beautiful observation right at the beginning when you when you say that lockdowns and working from home have turned us all into exactly the same class because we're going nowhere. there's everything can be, remain aspirational, but the aspiration is always to click like on something. So when when we're all reduced to our beings on the internet, we sort of Equalized. And I think that's that's a point from which you, you see the meme, um, the meme of Fisher and actually the meme of everything else as having political potential. So I think before we get into what you think the left could be doing, it might be a good idea to spend a moment to describe the meme landscape of the political right. And of course, this is a massive question because the political right means many different things, but I'm interested in The background against which any kind of counter-cultural and therefore counter-political narrative can emerge. Okay,
1: but firstly about right-wing memes, not not to go into too much um, the specifics, but I suppose the most shocking thing, the thing that really made people pay attention to right-wing memes was their reclaiming of Nazi symbolism. And the mm-hmm. way in which they they openly laughed at, at anti-Semitism and, and and otherwise displayed um, racist views and and imagery, just to, the ripping up, the complete trashing of certain things we held to be beyond reproach. Uh, I think that basically happened because I think that well, I mean, it's almost a South Park moment. It was. Almost, I mean, the thing is, it had mm. already been happening. That's the thing. It was like it had been happening in mainstream culture there was this kind of extreme irony and you had to ask, you know, was this extreme irony, which was basically, you know, it was often aimed at the bigots themselves. So if you take a, a cartoon like South Park, you had a situation where you would have these uh, racist jokes, but it would be like, but the jokes has made by racists. And, you know, therefore, you know, we're supposed to be laughing at the racism of the character mm. uh, as well as perhaps laughing at the, the shrill kind of aspect of political correctness, but, you know, simultaneously laughing at a political correctness that perhaps had become too much taken for granted and laughing at ignorance at the same time. The the tricky thing became that in a culture that basically, where, where the country was very much dominated by white heterosexual men, you know, could you really say that, you know, it's a joke to ironically laugh at the bigotry, you know, of, it, of opinions coming from, you know, that quarter from those people. Um, I don't think it's an irony when you still haven't resolved the fundamental problems and tensions. So, if you get to meme culture, I think it's basically, you know, that's just people taking on those kind of messages and doing it for themselves. So it's no longer coming through South Park; it was coming just through kids, you know, in their in their bedrooms. Well, the kids a lot of time. I think the thing is, they are just—they uh, were just joking, because they kind of realized, mm. "Hey, we can post this Nazi comment, and people—people so people are going to get really upset." So I think it was a kind of uh, provocation, a bit like South Park. And I think it was—if it wasn't a joke against racism itself, it was a joke against just everyone. It was a joke against the whole yeah. system, which—which—which which, which, you know was a mess, in which they could see in their own parents, their teachers, everyone around them. You know, was presenting this one face of, you know, a civilized society that would not condone the swastika, for example, as the kind of as a red line, you know. But at the same time, you know, you had this level of police brutality as well. You have ongoing yeah. in America It was the unwitting emergence into into the mainstream of the reality mm. of bigotry in America and the way that the neoliberal order defended that bigotry. And as you could say the same there for, yeah. for the whole of the Western world. And then how does one react to that? Well, that's tricky. I mean, because you're reacting against the people making the memes isn't, isn't really any good. It doesn't really work. Because like, like I say, I think that they are, you know, we're all kind of mouthpieces for culture. I don't think it's particularly their fault. You know, there's a lot of talk about Protecting the rights of minorities, of women, uh, LGBTQ, and then there are you know down in their luck white men saying what about me? So I think that that it's not so surprising that you know this kind of bigotry manifested you know in that way that people would become carriers of those messages that were really messages that just reflected the fundamental inequality of of, of neoliberal culture. Um, so what I would say is that one way that we have tried to react to it on the left is to make memes with the hammer and a sickle, memes with Stalin. You know, there's been a direct reaction. Okay, so they reclaim the swastika, we reclaim um, mm. Sovietism, uh, Soviet imagery. But that, just, that doesn't work for me, and I think you know, fundamentally, oppositional messages don't work. And this goes uh, back to another Frankfurt School thinker. Adorno, who I mentioned in um Can yeah. kind Left of Learn to Meme and the Memeing of Mark Fisher. So Adorno basically believed that you couldn't really uh you couldn't really oppose barbarity. Uh he was a German Jew who fled uh, Nazi Germany like Marcuse did and, and Walter Benjamin as well. Adorno basically said that figurative art, he specifically meant figurative art in relation to to politics that, that couldn't address the horrors of World War II. He he most famously spoke about poetry when he said um mm. it's barbaric to write poetry after Auschwitz and I think meaning poetry fundamentally about Auschwitz. And he said and then this highlights why it's fundamentally barbaric to write any poetry. So what he really meant there is that art about suffering feeds back into that suffering. That was one of his main concerns. But he also says that look, if we got to a position where the Holocaust can happen, where the gas chambers can happen, we must be so far along the road to complete objectification and commodification of all things, including humans, that it must be possible to make anything called art, anything you know because art for him is something that can at least pretend to be other than the world, to have a transcendental capacity. The point is he's not simply saying oh no, we can't have poetry about Auschwitz because it's so terrible. He's saying in a society that's so terrible, you can't have poetry. So the artwork for Adorno, when it's really an artwork, it must be free of tension. It must be able to stand above the false binaries of human interaction, temporarily at least. Now this is maybe important to grasp one thing, so I will say it, is that Adorno says that a fundamental problem is that we as humans constantly identify and that's, what, it's what he, that's part of what he calls identity, identity thinking. And by that, he means that we proceed through life by categorizing things, naming things, giving them numbers, etc. which is essential. We can't, we can't live without doing that. It's part of mm. making us safe. Okay? It's part of understanding the world. But he says that basically what's happened is that we've come so far in identifying and categorizing. that We've identified and categorized everything to the degree that we've identified and categorized each other under numerical yeah. wage, wage values, so we're all worth you know something. It's out of this that, for Adorno, the Holocaust arises, okay? For Adorno, the artwork is removed from this situation or, or removes itself from it's, this situation when it's at its most abstract, because in an abstract artwork, and it's easy to think about painting here, although he was talking more about literature and music, but if you think about an abstract painting, you can't say, when you look at abstract painting, here's a tree here's a house, here's a person, etc. You, for a moment, you're not in a position anymore when confronted by an abstract work that you lose yourself in. If you have the space around you to really contemplate the work, for a moment, you're, you're unable to name things, to categorize, to think, you know, I have an appointment at 6 p.m. or I have homework to do if you're a student or, you know, or whatever. You're temporarily removed from that uh, and you drift mm-hmm. away. And at some point, at some point that ends and you feel it ending strongly you feel yourself come back into your body. Now, Adorno says that's really important because coming back into your body is actually the false moment when you, again, you make the distinction between yourself and things around you, which is our our biggest kind of problem as humans, that we have to, to get by, distinguish between myself, the individual I, and everything outside me. But it leads to conflict. So only in this, this moment of loss in the abstract artwork do you get beyond that that conflict. Do you you, you momentarily realise you're connected this to everything around you? Okay, So if you could do this permanently, there wouldn't be any conflict. But it's something that we could only experience fleetingly. For Adorno, you can't make art after Auschwitz, because in a society where clearly we're so far in this process of identification of each other that we end up killing people en masse, if that is the case, then there can't be the conditions to create a truly abstract artwork. The two things can't coexist in the same culture, Mm. uh, is what Adorno is really saying. Now, the thing is, Adorno was speaking after World War II Again, he was uh, exiled to Britain then the US. Uh, Horkheimer, his colleague, and Marcuse and Benjamin, you know, all had to flee Nazi Germany. Benjamin went to France. Uh, obviously, we were talking about earlier how he he was going around the arcades of Paris as part of mm-hmm. his arcades project. Later on, Adorno returned to Germany to carry on the work of uh, the Frankfurt School there following World War II. You know, both when he was in the US and after he returned to Germany he's dealing with what happened as a German Jew who lost people close to him. So Adorno is reacting to you know this situation and he's very negative about any possibility after that of uh, superseding um, the kind of inherent conflictual uh, nature of human interaction. So he basically, he even tells his own students they shouldn't be protesting. So in uh, the late 60s, there's this famous moment where his students rose up against him Uh, In Frankfurt, in the university there, and he basically called the cops in January of 1969. He called the police in January 69 uh, on his students, and um, this is a very famous moment. And and actually, Adorno he gets kind of dragged through the mud for, uh, for this, but he's really thinking: Look, until we've resolved the fundamental problem of identity thinking, you know that that we have this tendency to categorize, until we can, you know, until we can think otherwise, we're going to keep repeating the same mistakes of the Nazis, but also, of course, of the Soviet Russians, because it was apparent by that point, what was happening in Soviet Russia and what had happened under Stalin, the gulags, etc. So, you know, he's saying until we resolve this, any movement is going to descend back into tyranny. So I think, you know, when we think about how extreme he was in that sense, uh, I think his kind of prohibition on figurative art, anti-war art, it gets put in context. I don't think we're in the same situation now. And I think we have to make our own decisions anyway. Uh, I think certainly <laughs> I think certainly, abstract art could be useful. And I think he's right there. And I think an abstract, you know, output on the internet, an abstract art form on the internet might help us to kind of get beyond some of these conflicts where you have swastikas opposed to uh, hammer and sickles, where you have, you know, where you have... Um, Actually, identity politics, uh, which is interesting because, you know, I don't want to use this word identity thinking. It's not actually related to identity politics at all. No. But you do get with identity politics this, um, well, this strong, this strong desire to claim identities. That, that the politics revolves around that rather than revolving around the economy, for example. And it does lead to conflict. Uh, we don't want to get into this probably, but, you know, council culture. Um, etc. So, you know, if we had an abstract internet, where instead of it being, it being about like, I believe this, no, I believe this, and leading to constant binary oppositions on Twitter, for example, if we had something we could contemplate instead, then I think we'd be in a much better position. But what that would be, I don't know. That's that's difficult. That's difficult because the internet doesn't lend itself to contemplation.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com.
2: Well, but it lends itself itself to something, and I mean, you you cite plenty of examples in the book where the meme does do quite a lot of a lot of this work, and you also you you actually come up with with a bit of a proposal for how it is that we could we could try to conduct this kind of open culture through what you term as a slow meme movement. I'm interested in in your takes on a couple of things. So first, one of the things that we inherit from Benjamin is the relationship between the left and right of politics and how that determines um, the relationship between aesthetics and politics. So Benjamin, I forget where he does this, but it's something that kind of knocks around all the time, is that he, he says that the Nazis politicize aesthetics. So this idea that we make we leave beautiful ruins behind us, it means that, that, that we can make buildings and they are ultimately automatically political. That that is something that only the right can really deal with. And then the flip side of that is that for the left, the only thing available is to politicise aesthetics, which is possibly why we've had such an explosion, maybe over the period of the last 10, 15 years of critical political art. And I, I find that particularly problematic. And I think you you have some proposals in in the book for how to undo that. I also wanted to ask you about the the kind of perversely non-contemplative but also democratic dimension of the meme. So just just being purely mechanistic, if we take 4chan or 8chan, those websites which are essentially troll farms in which people throw out ideas, throw out one version after another of the same kind of template one meme after another with just a couple of words changed or maybe colors different. The way that these seem to circulate is that they're only successful if a certain number of people give them a thumbs up. So there's something vaguely democratic about the successful meme, particularly the the right-wing meme. So I'm also interested, kind of as a counterpoint to that being a effect that we are in, Is there an element of the left meme that's somehow the opposite of democratic? Like, how do we go about designing a meme? Isn't isn't designing a meme, which is one of the things that you you propose for for leftist politics, isn't that almost antithetical to what a meme is and how it comes about?
1: To get into this thing of democracy, I mean, it's a very interesting question. And I think it does come in a bit to Benjamin's uh, work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction. Yeah, democracy is is, is something we talk about all the time in terms of culture. I mean, it's part of every museum's mission statement. It's part of the mission statement of all of the social democracies and neoliberal democracies in the world. You know, all of the the culture ministries, they talk about culture Mm. for all. And this really comes down from the avant-garde of uh, the early last century. You know, this idea that perhaps anyone can do art coming down from the idea that anything can be art. So Duchamp, Joseph Boyce, etc. You know, you you have all of this, but actually if you go into art spaces, they don't feel very welcoming. You know, museums don't feel very welcoming, certainly if you get into uh, actually trying to be part of the art scene, going to galleries when they have openings. But, you know, these things, they feel like there's a social code there that, that, that somehow you, you don't often feel you're completely welcome in those events, even if you do have a role to play in the art world. I think... You know that we've been looking for this kind of um ostensibly looking for this kind of open art world where everyone's invited but actually hasn't really ever existed and then we start we we finally get it in the shape of Hmm. memes and we start saying no no but don't do that you know suddenly you get a thing where anyone could do anything and you're like okay you know democracy but hang on it's the wrong kind of democracy because look at what the kids are making you know so i think we we have this kind of quandary then you mean aesthetics versus politics does it come into the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction right i I think so i really would be useful to find the very end of that essay so basically it talks it does talk about fascism aestheticizing art and then last line says communism communism responds by politicizing art okay Mm. So that's, that's a distinction. But this is interesting because I, I know that it didn't say communism. In some versions, it doesn't say communism. That was changed. If you get most versions of that book, you'll find it doesn't say communism. It says something like similar to like progressive forces. Anyway, so there it's very clear. So that essay, which is often sold as like a nice little essay about how the artwork loses its aura in the age of mass reproduction, is actually an essay about how, how fascists... You know, use use the artwork or or, or use kind of uh, aesthetics to kind of mislead the public, and then it says at the end that the antidote would be communism, which will respond by politicizing art. Um So that is a distinction there between the aestheticization, which is like the aestheticization of politics, which is basically using you know parades, propaganda posters, etc., to to basically confuse the public and sidetrack the public from its newfound thirst for for more wealth and for, for at least equal material relations. How can we say it? material relations that, that are fair? The Nazis use propaganda to divert from that. So that is the, the aestheticization of politics. And then Benjamin's response is that, is that we need to respond by politicizing art. So we need to use this moment in which, uh, images have this kind of much wider proliferation in which everyone mm. is able to now appreciate culture. And 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 politicize that culture with we, we know the well, we knowledge I, I that
2: contend, I contend that that has proven its itself to be to be a bit of a failure. It, it, we shoot ourselves in in a foot by doing that. And my my primary piece of evidence for that is the entirety of the art world, the critical progressive art world over the last twenty years. And i would be surprised if you disagreed with with that reading. So, so I'm interested in your, in your reading of that in the internet, in the, in the meme, meme sphere.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I would say, yeah, for sure, the art world, which, which has, had, has had a very political moment since the economic crisis, that's when things got mm-hmm. very political again. So it's probably had its most protracted political moment um, ever, you know, in terms of art being, you know, since modern art began. We have this protracted period reflection on political art and it doesn't work because the art world is so tied into finance you know and you really feel Mm. that you feel that the statements are very superficial so it's it's a process of whitewashing the egos of collectors of art collectors so getting away from that because you want me to talk about memes (laughs) um now i would say that memes you know that's where they maybe step in that you have this situation Mm. where the art world kind of presents itself as the area of counterculture the place where, you know, alternative thought might thrive. This is why people go to art school. Then you go there and you start to realise that actually it's not here at all. I've been mm. given courses, I've been given courses on how to appeal to a gallerist and yeah. you know no one has time for me because and, they're and
2: successfully as well. That's I mean I think that's that's yeah, the biggest yeah. crime of the art school in my estimation. Yeah. But yeah. never mind that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean art school is deeply disappointing for for many people. And yeah. you know, I see the problem, uh, that problem being associated generally just with, 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 the, with the art world as, as a market. So art school reflects that. And it, it kills people's dreams in, in a way that's reflective of the way that the dream of art has been killed for society. So yeah, under capitalist culture, there isn't this space of rebellion. Um, but there is a space online where anyone can go and do anything. So you can't maybe do anything in art school and you can't do anything if you want to succeed in the art world. But you can do anything in the meme sphere. This is again where the internet is the best and worst of all things because you can get you you know you get people doing anything and then they they do these quite nasty things and you get people doing anything and they do they do wonderful things and then the whole mass of everything put together is like a mass it's like a, it's such a confusion it's like reading James Joyce or something but that's where it, that's where it works in a way you do get an abstraction through the internet the internet is an abstraction yeah. because you can't make sense of it and that not being able to make sense may throw up uh some new ideas because you have you know the human mind has to try and make sense or we don't make any sense and then we get suspended in some moment of you know where we're not we're not making judgments but that would that would also be good but yeah i I think there is some kind of potential there but i don't think it's very fulfilling if people want to know like how are we gonna how are we gonna solve the the big problems we have now i don't think they're going to be convinced that the internet will do that but then you know one has to wonder Are we just in this maelstrom because everything's being thrown up in the air so people can put any message out there? It's causing widespread confusion. Uh, we don't really know where we're heading next. And and do we just have to wait till this, to the pieces land back in place? Um, I, I don't know. But in, in terms of, you know, what, what do memes do that's, you know, that's better than the art world or better than mass media? Well, I mean, anyone can make anything. We can look anyone can publish anything. I mean, this is already huge. This is already in terms of power, the complaints that were being made by the Frankfurt School and by media theorists for the whole of the last century is all top down. It's all coming yeah. from the elite down. You know, uh, the same voices are being heard again and again. That's completely collapsed. Um, and there are so many more theorists that for me to have a voice as a theorist, anything like you know, some of the people we look back to, like Baudrillard or um, Debord, Guy Debord, et cetera. It's just not possible. But I think, you know, you have to stand in awe and say, well, this is the thing we always wanted. And, you know, I, I give an example that when I go online, I get cussed out. I get people criticizing me. And they're not evidently people who hold PhDs in the subject. They might be 20 years old, you know, often they are. Yeah. And, you know, you have to kind of think, how am I going to deal with that? Sometimes your level of expertise doesn't matter. Sometimes they know what you do, and they just they 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 make fun of you or something. It doesn't happen a lot, but it can happen. And I'm not talking about the very nasty stuff when people are actually out to cancel you. Yeah, I mean, I think the the, the thing is, I I actually look on in awe, and I'm like, something's been achieved because I'm being cussed out by effectively my students, even if they're not sometimes my actual students, but you know, people of that age. Because back in the day, like when Mark Fisher had K-Punk, the reason his K-Punk blog got so popular, one reason, and the same as Graham Harmon's blog, which is still ongoing, um, and a number of other blogs, there was um, speculative heresy from Nick Sernichek and Alex Williams. Nina Power had a blog. There was this moment, this explosion in theory blogging. The reason why that caught on is because nobody could talk to their own professor. I was at the CRMEP, Centre for Research into Modern European Philosophy, doing my master's. And you couldn't access, I mean, with it, Ray Brassier was very good. Alex Dutman was relatively accessible. But often you felt that, you know, you weren't supposed to really talk to your professors. You know, you wrote emails, you were told to come and see them in the in the one hour or two hours of, of office time they had that, that week. And this was reflective across academia. But you could reach out through the comments section to Mark Fisher or you could email him and yeah. he'd reply and graham Harmon and a number of other, a number of other people so this broke down that um hierarchy but not entirely because it was still very much that there were a few leaders you know that 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 you could reach out to these people but you very much felt that you know they were still the philosophers now it's like in a way it's what's happened to theory it's like what happened to art anyone could be an artist and i think we very much buy into that you know, art is something that anyone should be able to do we we the, the kind of sense of there being experts has been eroded um to a large degree in the contemporary world contemporary, contemporary art world the art market you still have that that has to be in place for the market to work but generally you know we're we're open to calling many things art now um that's happening more and more to theory and then you know you look at some stupid memes a stupid meme that you know, maybe takes the Mark Fisher quote out of context and you're gonna think, Well, is this right? But at the same time you can think, well, at least it's creating conversation, you know? It's getting people to think. <laughs> a lot of people are looking they they're 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 buying Mark Fisher's capitalist realism. It's only is it eighty seven pages? I'd
2: say it's a very yeah then, it's a very very punchy way to deliver a very depressing message.
1: Yeah, and they're and they're reading it. And yeah, and and then they're maybe taking the depressive message away and not taking the kind mm. of positive aspects away. But yeah. I don't know. I think there's still room for positivity, and I think partly evidenced by the fact that people attack you if you write about memes in academia. Some people do, and you just know that. Therefore, it must be doing something good because they they fear memes, they fear online yeah. culture.
2: Yeah, I've i I've, I've had a couple of encounters with media theorists who who are completely appalled by by any suggestions that one would engage with the study of Pepe de Frog. And 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 try to figure out what it all means, and and you know try to find, as you do in a book, alternatives for for other political outlooks. So so you talked about the the difficulties under other the challenge of the impossibility of just appropriating right wing techniques, and in a book you discuss Andrew Young, the uh, presidential candidate, who at some point had this kind of super progressive platform that included universal basic in- income somehow within his movement there was this idea that we could that he could get ahead by getting tagged on to the meme movement and you describe this utterly bizarre moment when his campaign team tried to make him into a kind of pepper the frog meme so this is of course an illustration of a failure i want to i want to tell you an anecdote something that i experienced merely a week ago at the opening of venice biennale i was sitting at dinner next to a very young, I guess, an anarcho-communist who lives in Rome, who displayed his leftist credentials in, in a way that, that left me absolutely no doubt as to the convic- his convictions and his, his deeply anti-right-wing politics. And he kept on talking and eventually started singing. He kept on talking about how him and his comrades occasionally um, do things like sing fascist songs for Italian fascist songs from the 1930s, precisely as a means of appropriation. So it's kind of of a strategy there. I wasn't able to really process what it is that he was trying to get at. And it was a little bit difficult to deal with when he started actually singing fascist songs at dinner. But never mind, it was late. But I could see some kind of potential in this this kind of endless sarcasm of of the kind of counterculture production that the meme the meme engages in. so i I'd, I'd like 'd like to offer yeah. you that as a kind of counterpoint case study to the the failure of andrew young's attempt to to appropriate right wing culture
1: i mean a couple of things there firstly, I do know that italians that, that they do appropriate um, fascist icons and images in their artwork oft, often to make to make a left wing point that it's something mm-hmm. that where it just wouldn't be done in the UK or the US, or, mm. or, or there would be uproar if it was done. That it's it's kind of it's just it's taken as, as as normal there. I think partly because you have to bear in mind that a lot of the fascist architecture is in place. The uh, national football stadium has uh, obelisk to Mussolini just outside it. Mm. Um, this modernist obelisk with uh, Duce or ducks. Duke's written on the front, which means Duce, Fuhrer, basically. Um they're still living alongside these things. They they, they it's not so much a situation of having completely disowned their past, because I suppose that you know they kind of capitulated. They kind of they 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 changed sides, didn't they? Well, not so much that they changed sides in World War Two, but that they uh, they had a strong partisan movement that yeah. them, themselves uh, did away with Mussolini. So it is, it's not quite the same situation as as Germany mm-hmm. or, or Japan. But as for the Andrew Yang, Andrew Yang, well, he basically, as you say, he offered his universal basic income, and what happened is that. Suddenly, there were, there were a lot of memes circulating that appeared to be possibly from the same people who had been making previously pro-Trump memes, who become disillusioned with Trump, and who basically said, like, you know, yeah, let's have the one thousand euros a month, so one thousand dollars a month, universal basic income, and they started making memes in which, you know, they would. Take the money and sell it, and spend, and spend it on drugs, or spend it on drinking, mm-hmm. or whatever. So it was just—it um, was really just kind of a joke around that. But they did infuse these images with uh, Pepe the Frog and with uh, Wojak characters, so crudely drawn, uh, line-drawn characters that have been, you know, familiar. From, from Trump's campaign from the means associated with that. So I think this was the primary issue and, and not so much that, that Yang co-opted uh, these images, such as Pepe the Frog, more that people appended these images to his campaign and he would have had a hard time shaking this off. So I think, he I don't know what he himself did, but his campaign group kind of went along with it. Uh, they were aware that this, this, this massively increased visibility of of Yang's campaign, the issue there is more, you know, Yang in a sense being derailed. That his campaign, which was only partly about universal basic income, even though he did kind of put that at the front of his campaign, became this kind of silly joke around um, MAGA hat wearing pro Trumpers suddenly ditching the hat in return for a thousand dollars a month. This was a popular meme yeah. trope. So you might have, for example, actually Pepe the Frog. You know, going over to Yang. So, <laughs> my feeling was that more that you know that there's something impressive about the way that meme meme creators can overturn the kind of mainstream messaging of a democratic candidate. I wasn't so much taken up by the fact that a left wing message had been had been tampered with. I'd, I'd rather that it hadn't have happened, in a sense, but. The kind of the positivity, if there, is, if there is anything positive about this, resides in the way that you know, young people making memes in their bedrooms can mess with well-funded political campaigns. And that could have a positive value. But the thing is, the left haven't seemed to work out how to do this in the same way. Hmm.
2: I want to take us back to, again, the role of counterculture, which, which we have been mentioning on and off. I think it would be remiss of me not to not to ask you to deliver a manifesto for what Mark Fisher referred to as acid communism, and you you call, maybe for slightly marketing reasons, you call acid leftism. Particularly, I'm interested in how you see the potential of counterculture as a political tool.
1: Well, let's just go dial back a bit. For example, there's this meme called um, uh, We're fucking on the Fisher bed tonight. <laughs> okay. It comes from a series of memes which are called, you know, we are fucking on the like X bed tonight, where X could be the Minecraft bed or it could be, oh. you know, whatever bed. But inevitably, perhaps a meme was produced in which it was, in which there was a picture of a bed with the cover of Fisher's Capitalist Realism as a bedspread. You know, this obviously um, is kind of ridiculous. And it, it, it shows to what degree Mark Fisher's image has been kind of turned around and tampered with that you, you can't get to the serious nature of the book you know so easily because you're dealing with that kind of bizarre meme bizarre partly because fisher was such a kind of you know self effaceive quiet guy that the message like you know we're fucking on the fisher bed just seems you know it seems unusual to anyone mm-hmm. who, who had met him or seen him talk ever what i say in the book is that look um there may be somewhere real life boomer and then we get to actually the Doomer is a is a type of meme. It's like a generic um, depressed person. Yeah.
2: Again, link, links to all of this in the show notes for listeners who might want to get addicted. Uh,
1: somewhere there may be a real life Doomer somewhere sitting on a capitalist realism bedspread and contemplating revolution. So you see how this kind of you know mm. comes about. That yeah, it's all ridiculous, but somebody might get pulled into this through these memes, and they may actually you know, decide to somehow work through this and work out how to. Yeah bring about democratic socialism, for example. Um, And then, you know, as well as Duma, you have Duma Girl, you have like various different meme figures because you mentioned Duma and Duma Girl earlier, we haven't mentioned (laughs) them. So um, anyhow, um, in a similar way, Mark Fisher argues that somehow out of all of this kind of, out of the mess we're in, there may emerge a, uh, a a counter-cultural movement, which he would call acid communism, or more to the point, he states we need an acid communism. Now, an acid communism for Fisher is a movement which kind of blends the basic message of communism, um, you know, let's say what I said earlier, from each according to their abilities, to each according to their needs, mm-hmm. that blends that with a... Um, A creative movement in the mold of 60s and 70s psychedelia then what fisher found important about 60s and 70s psychedelia is that it wasn't something that just happened like in woodstock or in fields somewhere or in you know parties in fashionable parts of london or you know even when it became much bigger movement it's not something that just happened amongst young people who dropped acid basically psychedelic culture was you know it was infused throughout even mainstream culture—you had TV programs that were totally off the wall in the '60s. You had constant mm. psychedelic music playing on the radio. That you know there was a, a sense of the blurring of boundaries that comes comes about through psychedelia. And a sense of this blurring of boundaries—you know, this kind of losing one's edges—that pervaded throughout society at that moment. Partly because you had, you know, you also had a kind of uh, gender and sexual revolution, and you also had a questioning of the class system and you had a potentiality because it seemed that the west was booming somehow economically or at points in that in the 60s and 70s it was and you know maybe the whole thing the whole system could be subverted um Fisher says that you know perhaps we could have that moment again or rather we need to have that moment again and really he really he sees the acid as a corrective to the overly kind of uh, officious and power driven hierarchical tendencies of traditional Marxism or traditional communism. So you have this thing where, in a way, the the, the acid is, is a corrective to the the problems of totalitarianism and the way communism yeah. is perceived. But then communism is a corrective to the LSD because when people think of LSD, they think of people losing their heads and talking drivel, <laughs> you know, and also having wonderful spiritual encounters and things, but things that maybe can't be useful, you know, to, to creating the conditions of socialism. I basically, I, I don't actually, I'm not involved anymore, but I ran a YouTube channel and podcast called The Acid Left with a poet and artist called Adam Ray Adkins, where actually, I actually removed myself, not for really any specific reason. I suppose one thing is that is that the the issue of uh, hallucinogens came up constantly, and I think this is interesting. I actually thought this yesterday, and I said it to somebody. I haven't said it publicly at all. But I think Mark Fisher would have really been in trouble I mean not big trouble not more trouble than he would than known before because he, he got in trouble with Twitter trolls and things before but um, he would certainly have had problems you know with this term acid communism he would have been constantly asked about the psychedelic connotations yeah. and should, should one drop LSD and I assume Fisher wasn't doing drugs in his last years you know, I certainly don't think it, that it was imperative that one does LSD Fisher was very much more talking about the pervasiveness of psychedelia in culture in general uh, at the time but yeah i mean the, the movement he proposes is basically is that that we need we need a movement of you know music events but also seminars where we can discuss things openly um and where we can build communities and i think that the argument at the end of my book is that we can use the internet to foster that movement so we have this opportunity with online culture to meet up outside. So you're making a podcast. I make podcasts. Now I run a podcast called Down and Out in the Art World. But also I have a new YouTube channel called Theory Wave Nights. It's actually mm. an, old, an old channel I reclaimed, Theory Wave Nights. Um, but the frustrating thing when, you, when, you, when you're involved in these things is that, yeah, we have this massive online left now who make memes, podcasts, videos, et cetera but we haven't worked out how to kind of get that out on the streets. But I think the Bernie yeah. Sanders the Bernie Sanders and Corbyn campaigns kind of demonstrated how that's possible because you had quite advanced online database type systems where you were would, you would going and you would be told, oh, we need some street canvases in Hackney tomorrow in London. We need some more means on this subject. We need this, we need no. So they were coordinating people both online and offline mm. through this online system. And I think you know, why couldn't we do that outside the electoral moment? Because, you know, that was kind of an exciting moment. It was momentum of managing that kind of software. Um, the Sanders campaign managed it directly. It was called something like dispersed organization, it's mm. this method of organizing, um, where you would kind of, organized centrally online, but have people sent out doing different things. And you would say to people, you know, please go canvassing this week once, but also make a meme or a tweet about this, you know. Yeah. So, you know, we can have both things existing concurrently. But the thing is they happen during election this happens during election campaigns, then it stops. But what if we had that database all the time?
2: I mean I think this is a pretty important question because I think one of the failures of the left that 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 I'm receptive to, or at least critiques of the left now, is that it has completely lost its ability to develop infrastructure, and in the twenty-first century, where everything is online, where the right-wing campaigns are all perfectly synchronized to to big data, that the, the, this kind of infrastructure development is 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 pretty important.
1: Yeah, I think you. Yeah, yeah, I think you would need. Um... It'd need to be a campaign as such but maybe just an interim campaign between mm. elections or, or maybe I, I don't know we have a problem i think we think is we need to subordinate the elections to the movement so that's why i think we need we yeah. need this kind of thing happening all the time but i mean no doubt momentum i mean of course they're still doing big things and and the sanders campaign is kind of ongoing as well but you know i think it could be rolled out you know because i i think it could be rolled out and become a become a bigger continuous thing you could say let's have uh Let's have some kind of street action in Helsinki whilst we have a street action in London. Mm. And let's also have a podcast on this and that. I mean, we could coordinate things much more closely between you know, between street events yeah. and, and online events on a constant basis.
2: Mm. Well, you just have to convince these armies of meme makers, artists and activists to join the cause. Mike, to finish, I have probably the most meta question I've ever been able to ask here because I understand that your book and you got memed almost in the manner of mark fisher
1: yeah that's that's interesting yeah the memeing of mark fisher before it came out two weeks before it came out uh it actually uh yeah it became a kind of meme because somebody else released a book by the same name deliberately to <laughs> to try and derail my book and actually it was a book just simply full of um memes of mark fisher some of which were made by me actually that I pulled oh. off instagram and uh, it was kind of a cynical move. But I could see how it was kind of funny as well. It didn't impede the book. The book actually did very well. It may actually have uh, increased the book sales. But it's followed upon hundreds of tweets against the book uh, a few months before that when a number of people associated with a rival publisher saw the title and just took umbrage. Firstly, that I wrote a book about meme, uh, Mark, about Mark Fisher. Secondly, that I wrote a book about memes of Mark Fisher. And there were all kinds of reasons, but there were some quite ridiculous, uh, Oppositions, But the interesting thing, yeah, I mean, I don't know how much I should really go into this, but uh, yeah, with a, the with a, with a spoof book of my book, which still exists on Amazon, you can still see it there. It seems to have had some links to somebody who actually endorsed my book. And there will be a second edition of my book and it will be well publicized with a preface on all these kind of strange strands that occurred mm. around the release of my book. So this maybe will be raised again. All the craziness around the book will will resurface when I release the second edition. Probably with, well, not with Zero Books. It'll be with a new a new publisher, but I'll mm. get into that. I'll, I'll so, reveal that soon.
2: Yeah, I mean, for, for, for listeners who, who might have spent some time online and are privy to the the ins and outs of the online left, Zero Books has also gone through a Let's put it mildly, a meme moment recently as well, but maybe that's enough controversy for one day. Mike? I, Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank this, you. Has been, this has been a pleasure to, to gain an insight into the, the, the dark online left and a bit of the dark online right. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. Thank you
1: very much. Thanks. It's been great to be here. Thank you.
2: The Memeing of Mark Fisher, How the Frankfurt School Foresaw Capitalist Realism and What to Do About It by Mike Watson is published by Zero Books. I'm Pierre Valencia and the editor is Marshall Poe. Thank you for listening and join us next time.